Welcome to Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. I'm Deborah Lair, Vice Chairman and Executive Director of the Paulson Institute. For this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Rian Mari Thomas, Chief Executive of the Green Finance Institute in the United Kingdom. Rian Mari, we are delighted to have you joining us today. We are looking forward to discussing with you more about the Green Finance Institute and its expansive agenda. A very warm welcome to the Green Team Speaks To podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, there's a lot for us to cover with all the positive momentum that's happening in green finance these days. Talking about the Green Finance Institute, you've said on your website that your approach is ruthlessly practical, which is the Paulson Institute we love and you bring a diverse group of practitioners to develop innovative solutions for greening the financial system. So tell us about its mission. Thanks very much for the opportunity to do that, Deborah. So the Green Finance Institute was launched in July 2019. I'm very proud to be the first chief executive, having previously spent almost 20 years in banking. And it was initially set up and uh, funded by the UK government and the City of London Corporation with a mission to um, mobilize more capital towards green finance. How do we accelerate green finance? And it's obviously a fantastic platform to do just that. When we launched, we took a slightly different take on the strategy than I think many people were expecting, which was rather than looking at greening finance, which in my definition is very much to do with making sure that you know, the entire financial industry understands that climate risk is finance risk and looking at all the right disclosures, capital weighting, regulatory requirements, oversight, governance, all of which I think is really the purview of the regulator. Rather than throwing our lot in with that agenda, we decided to work very closely with the regulators and others who are making such progress in that space and focus instead on financing green. How do we actually mobilize capital towards the real economy outcomes that we know are going to be so critical for climate stability? So whereas I think greening finance is rightly focused on financial stability and avoiding that climate Minsky moment that Mark Carney so memorably coined as a phrase a few years ago, is actually working with the coalition of the willing, those that understand that actually the transition represents an opportunity, an opportunity for investment. And that in order to pivot the mainstream financial institutions away from high carbon petro economy of the 20th century towards the electro economy of the future, we're gonna need to think of new products and mechanisms, and we're possibly going to need new regulatory and legislative support to enable that to happen. And we're, of course, really just perfectly placed sitting at that nexus between the policymakers and the city. I like to say we're financed by government, but we're led by bankers. And so we're using that position to create new investable markets, co-designing new products, new ways of working um, by bringing together lots of different experts, genuine collaborative efforts between the city, the policymakers, both central government and local government as well as the NGOs, the academics, and the real economy industrial experts that are needed around the table. 
And I'm happy to talk about real examples rather than just talking in jargon terms, Deborah, but I'm sure we'll get into some of that as we as we discuss. Absolutely. I mean, that really is a very innovative and exciting approach. And we we see that with the Biden administration coming in and the United States wanting again to be in the climate game and the actions that China is taking, not only with their long-term commitment in 2060 to move to net zero on carbon, but the steps that they're starting to take today that are very innovative around green finance, that there really is almost a generational opportunity to invest. We'd love to hear about some of the specific examples that you have. We really are at quite an exciting turning point, aren't we? we you could almost argue that, you know, we really are normalizing green finance and climate in in some of exactly. these conversations and it's so it's exactly. so energizing to hear you know of the biden administration's ambitions in this space and obviously you know the surprise announcement from china last summer about the 2060 net zero uh, target obviously in the uk we have an extraordinary year ahead of us as the hosts of the G7 summit and also co-hosts of COP26. So as you can imagine, we are all working absolutely flat out on announceables for all of for all of those summits. Somebody recently told me that there is no greater force in physics than the search for announceables in the run-up to summits, which uh, <laughs> made me, made me laugh. Um, yes. I'm going to credit Paul Bodner at the Rocky Mountain Institute with that one. So in terms of some of the projects that we're working on specifically at the Green Finance Institute, we clearly have a domestic agenda here in the UK, supporting uh, the UK's clean growth strategy, looking at how do we channel more capital into the retrofitting of energy efficient homes, for example, where we are taking some key lessons from the US where we've seen the success of your property assessed clean energy program, which has managed to deploy over, I think it's nearly $7 trillion, $7 billion, excuse me, into the retrofitting of commercial and residential properties. We don't have a similar program here in the UK, and we're working with a number of local authorities and the Development Bank in Wales, looking at how we could potentially pilot something similar here. Similarly, we're looking at how we can start decarbonizing road transport. And what is the most efficient way of using government balance sheet to crowd in private finance in all of these situations? What are the most impactful interventions using public money, using legislative levers, regulatory levers that will create these investable opportunities for this growing wall of green capital in mainstream finance that is increasingly aligning itself with ESG outcomes? but struggling perhaps to find those opportunities to invest because these are unfamiliar sectors or the risk adjusted returns don't yet quite work. So those are the types of projects. I'll give you a give you a very specific example of something we're working on at the moment as well, which is about green rental agreements. So when you look at private landlords who need to make the retrofitting investment, the capex upfront investment in retrofitting their buildings, there's this huge split incentive at the moment where they put up the monies, but the tenants get the benefit of lower utility bills. And that's been solved, I think, in some of the US states by standard language in rental agreements. That is not market practice in the UK at the moment. And so we looked into doing that and uncovered 
a whole bunch of regulatory barriers as to why it wasn't too straightforward to do that. So now we're working with a number of parties to figure out how can we adapt green rental agreements and how do we bring that out as a pilot into the market so that it becomes a market norm so that landlords and the tenants actually share the benefits of lower utility bills, which will provide more of an incentive for the landlords to invest up front. That's where we've got this um, reputation of being ruthlessly practical, Deborah, in that we, we're keen to work with practitioners in the market to figure out, not just admire the problem, or in some cases, polish a, polish a well-admired problem, but actually say, what are these barriers? Why is the finance not moving at the pace and scale that we need it to go? And then actually trying to co-own the answers to co-design the solutions with market participants and with the policymakers to actually get the money to flow. So that's that's kind of how we're focusing on, at the domestic level. When we look internationally, and you mentioned China, we're very proud that our chairman at the Green Finance Institute, Sir Roger Gifford, is also the chair of the UK-China Green Finance Task Force with Dr. Ma Jun. And one of the many different projects under that umbrella has been the Green Finance Principles for the Belt and Road, which has also been supported by the City of London Corporation, one of our investors. And again, an, an example of a very practical intervention, which is applicable to commercial and mainstream financiers. And just again, to talk about some of the very practical projects that we're working on in the run-up to COP. I'm pretty excited about this idea of a credit enhanced guarantee facility that we've been working on, which the genesis of this idea was, if we believe that the markets on the whole are pretty efficient, and if they can see an opportunity for attractive risk-adjusted returns against a positive policy backdrop, whenever we see that the money isn't moving at the pace and scale that it should be. There's clearly a tangible barrier or barriers in place. And so one of the things that we'd been scratching our heads around was around blended finance, which has been around as a solution for a decade. And in theory should be a solution to the huge investment gap that we see. You know, the OECD says that we need something like six trillion a year to get ourselves in line with the one and a half degree target under the Paris Agreement. Four trillion of that needs to go into developing and emerging economies where, you know, we know that there are perceived risks for you know, Western institutional capital. And so blended finance would seem to be the ready-made solution, and yet it hasn't scaled. So we actually went to speak to a number of African investors, most of them sitting in South Africa, a number in Kenya, and just asked what was what were the barriers? Why are these solutions not working? And importantly, what could we co-design in order to overcome them? And the answer we got was quite interesting, which was actually in a number of these sort of middle income countries mm -hmm. in Africa, there are already large pools of domestic capital, pension funds and institutional investors with capital to deploy. I was speaking recently at an event in Kenya, obviously over the Zoom, um, and so the, the numbers are, I have to hand, there's something like £8.6 billion worth of pension monies almost half of it invested in government securities. Mm -hmm. And it would like to invest in green infrastructure, adapting, you know, adaptation and resilient green infrastructure. But those projects need to be investment grade and a number of them aren't. 
So actually the feedback we got from finance practitioners in these countries were, look, we don't really want lots of Western capital flooding the market, distorting prices. What we actually need is an ability to credit enhance a number of these projects so that actually we are then able to deploy our own domestic capital towards them. So we've been working with a number of partners across Africa to develop a credit enhance guarantee facility, one that is really agile, that can be drawn down at the same sort of timescales as commercial deals are done, uh, which is obviously a huge challenge. And this is an idea that we're currently discussing with a number of ministers in the UK government. And we'd be delighted to discuss uh, further afield if there are others, both philanthropic and government funders, who think that this is something they'd like to get behind. Because again, I think it's a very practical opportunity for philanthropic capital, public impact capital to be working with private capital and to create new investable markets. Gosh, I'm like a stuck record, aren't I? But there we go. That's that's our mission. And uh, you, it's what I'm very excited about. So many issues. There are so many things that we would want to raise because your vision is so in line with what the Paulson Institute vision is. You know, for our chairman, Hank Paulson, clearly what his focus is on are market mechanisms. And he's a very practical person and likes practical solutions because he recognizes to really get a lot of this moving, you do need good government policy. But the reality is governments can only take you so far. They can only take you so far through the policy and they can only take you so far through the financing. In most cases, even in China, they can only finance about 10 to 15% of the money that's needed to make a lot of these changes. So the rest of it has to come from private sector capital. The good news is there is plenty of capital. And your story about Africa just reinforces that. The key is, like you said, how do you find the right projects? How do you develop the right standards? And then how do you kind of get out of the way for the money to start to flow? And how do you, like you said, how do you normalize this? That it's no longer viewed just as philanthropy. And I think that's really been one of the big turning points that we've seen in the last just two to three years where you have major financial institutions who no longer consider green finance as part of their philanthropic efforts and their foundations, but they're building actual real business around green finance. So it's very exciting. What do you see as you sort of look ahead in this space is some of the bigger challenges. I mean, you, you clearly have two major international events as a platform in the UK. The UK really has been a leader and I, I was so Glad to hear you mention the green investment principles because the Paulson Institute was an, an original participant in that as well. And we're very excited about how it's been catching on. But as you look ahead with these big events, what do you see are some of the big challenges that we need to address? I think one of the big challenges relates to something that you just said, Deborah, which was the word normalizing. And I do think that we have, and the momentum in the last couple of years has just been, I think, quite overwhelming. But um, and we certainly have got to the point now where I think we've normalized this idea that climate risk is financial risk. I don't think that the leader of any large financial institution could with any credibility claim that they do not realize that that is something that needs to be part of the strategy of the organization. And it's this isn't about chasing pockets of value, having a green bond desk or having an impact fund. This is about figuring out how you are going to embed this into your day-to-day -day financial decision-making. And so then where do I see the challenge? The challenge is we've moved from 
explaining why this is important to explaining how we're going to do it. And I think that's really critical over the next few years because the longer that we only talk about the why and talk at a very high level, it's a breeding ground for the cynics who will say, oh, look, you've all signed up to these net zero pledges, but actually you're not really pivoting what's happening and the investment gap is still where it was. And I think we're really staring down a three to five year period where we have to, have to turn this into action. And that's where one of the challenges I think is, I mean, obviously there's a lot of challenge around data, but there's also a lot of challenges about expertise. And so many of us need to pivot you know, our, it's almost like we need to unlearn what we've done previously in order for us to move forward. I think that that mantra of what got you here might not get you there applies so squarely to this particular challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, extrapolating historical trends in trying to make strategic decisions, it's not going to work when you're looking at disruption that's coming towards us. And that's really, really difficult when you think about that's how most credit models work. And that's how most decisions get made in really highly regulated financial organizations. So we've got a big education challenge ahead of us, a big data challenge ahead of us. And all of that sounds like I'm being pretty negative and that would be absolutely the wrong impression. I have so much confidence that the financial industry with all its creativity and ingenuity can rise to this challenge. The important thing is just making sure that we have the sharpest minds focusing their time and attention on this challenge and recognizing this isn't about shrinking to greenness. This isn't about what we can't do anymore. This is about finding creative and really new and innovative ways of making money from this agenda. And that's what really excites me over the next few years, but we shouldn't trivialize the the size of that challenge. Yeah, exactly. And and Rian, I think you've you've really hit upon a lot of interesting points. The key is right, helping people understand that there are new opportunities there. It's not only making money out of it, but it's job creation, it's the creation of new industries. And in many of these economies, as they look at coming out of this post-COVID crisis, maybe this is a path forward for them. And so let me let me address another related issue where maybe it hasn't been as normalized as we would say, and that's the uh, challenge of biodiversity and how do we start putting a price around nature. But first, let me congratulate you on your appointment as the co-chairman of the informal working group for the task force on nature-related financial disclosure. Clearly with all your background and your enthusiasm, we are all going to benefit from your role with this. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about it, but also what you see as some of the challenges as we really hear more and more people talking about how can we think creatively to try and turn bees and bats and trees into asset classes. That's absolutely, that's a brilliant way of, of categorizing the problem and the challenge. So just a few, few words on the TNFD, Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. This is obviously Uh, Another disclosure project that is following in the footsteps of the success of the TCFD. And we're currently at the point in the journey where we have an informal working group of 
over 70 financial institutions, corporates, governments and NGOs. There are, I think, almost 50, 49 or 50 of that number are financial institutions who are obviously key to all of this. And where what we're currently working on is effectively a blueprint as to how the TNFD, when it is set up, hopefully in the summer, will tackle what is an incredibly complex area. And as you say, very nascent area of looking at how nature impacts the P&L and the operations of corporates and financial institutions, and importantly, how their operations impact nature. So that is obviously a a nuance that the TCFD, when it was set up in 2015, didn't look at that double materiality aspect, but obviously the market has moved on since then. And this is absolutely critical when we're looking at nature, but it's also super complicated. I'm sorry to jump in, but could you give us a practical example, kind of a real world example of how that would work? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think the TNFD, the disclosure piece isn't the bit that's so complicated because the TCFD have set up the framework for how we look at disclosures, right? It's the four pillars, it's governance, it's strategy, it's risk metrics, and it's uh, risk management and its targets. So clearly it makes sense for any other disclosure project to adopt those four pillars. So that's not the tricky bit. The tricky bit is understanding what the substance that goes behind those disclosures and what is material. What is material for different types of businesses? So the decline in pollinators is obviously a critical issue if you are an almond milk producer, but it's less of an important issue if you are a water utility. But clearly for a water utility, excess water or insufficient water is a huge risk to your business. And this is something that we need to start thinking about when we're looking holistically at the impact that nature has on business. And then the other way around is what impact is business having on nature? And this is where discussions around deforestation, which is obviously a critical issue being very widely discussed at the moment, making sure that businesses, that investors really genuinely understand through disclosure and due diligence, how the businesses that we're financing, how are they impacting on deforestation? So it's looking at that issue from both sides, where clearly on that latter point, making sure that we've got really robust standards, really robust metrics, so that people can say, yes, we comply to this, is how that could get operationalized. We, the Paulson Institute, put out a a study this last year looking at pricing natural resources, and we know it really is a big challenge, particularly to get financial institutions to start to look at these issues as not just how they can put a price on it, but seeing that there's a market and trading in them to try and bring it into the mainstream. Well, that that Paulson report that you did with the Nature Conservancy and Cornell Uni, is that the one you're- Yes, yes. that's the one. That's enormous. It's very comprehensive. And it really makes lots and lots of recommendations that are very, very practical looking at that biodiversity finance gap. 200 pages, the, you're only trumped by the Descupta report with its 600 pages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who needs novels when we have these reports to read? But anyway, the executive summary is a report in itself. But, but, you know, one of the, the, again, it's filled with practical recommendations. The first one being, let's stop putting money into bad policies. And so as we look at, for example, subsidies going into agriculture, let's make sure that the subsidies are having people plant 
what is appropriate for their region. That's a, such a powerful example. And obviously in response to the Descupta review, which maybe some of the listeners are not aware of, but this was a, um, a report that was commissioned by the Treasury in the UK government, which I think is a really important point worth making. This wasn't the Environment Department. This was Treasury and Finance asking a leading professor to look at the economics of biodiversity. And I think has really fired a bit of a starting gun on really recognizing in the same way we've looked at climate that we need to look at biodiversity in a similar way. So we've been hosting some meetings in the aftermath of the Descupta review to ask financial institutes for their response to it. And obviously the point about subsidies has been a really important point, but also, you know, measurement, disclosures of risk, which is where the TNFD comes in, looking at the types of products that we need to develop, greater uptake of certifications, verifications, standards. There's so much that we need to do to normalize this latest frontier, which is is critical in so many ways. Also to back tackling climate change. There's a clear nexus there between climate and nature. So two sides of the same coin. Exactly. Well, the UK really has been a thought leader in both green finance at home and globally. And we're seeing clearly the same thing now in the biodiversity challenge. And you've played really a core part of that. So tell us, we've talked a lot about biodiversity. What do you see as some of the practical solutions in biodiversity? I see at the moment that we are really at the beginning of the journey on coming up with practical solutions. And actually, in the US, it does feel that you are a little more developed with ideas about water credits and biodiversity credits. And we're certainly looking to see what the key lessons are we could learn there. In the UK, we at the Green Finance Institute are working on developing a pipeline of projects that are scalable and investable by using public sector capital to be creative. Again, the same theme. Uh, we've been working with a, a investment readiness fund and also we are tabling a Pathfinder Fund, so looking at how we can use government capital to help the ideas that are coming out, a lot of them from environmental NGOs, to scale up so that they become investable. But one of the areas I think that there can be real opportunities when we look at green banks. They are such a effective way of crowding in private capital into climate finance. And we've been very pleased to have been working on a project with the Rocky Mountain Institute and the NRDC in the States about creating a green bank design platform that could provide a faculty of knowledge to support countries who want to set up their own green banks. And obviously in that the UK and the US have great credentials having set up some of the earliest green banks on this. But right now, green banks, on the whole, don't focus very much on nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. So I think in Australia and New Zealand, they've done some sustainable agriculture. And I think in the US, some of your green banks have looked at sustainable agriculture and water. But there's huge potential there. And here in the UK, we have a Scottish investment bank that's been announced, and it has explicitly said that uh, nature and biodiversity is part of its mandate. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the UK government has recently announced a national infrastructure bank that we're all pretty excited about. That mandate is still being finalised, and we're making sure to put biodiversity and nature on the table there too. That's really exciting. We know from our experience too that the Chinese are looking very actively at this so hopefully some good ideas will come out that others can follow. 
as we look to conclude, I know that there are some other topics where you really have been a leader. And one of that is advancing opportunities for women in finance. So can you talk a little bit about, I think our listeners would be interested in your own career in green finance and what you saw as some of the opportunities and the barriers that needed to be addressed. Thank you so much for raising that. Just quickly on my own personal journey, I've always been an avid environmentalist in my private life, but I didn't really understand that how I would bring my profession as a banker, um, mostly as an investment banker, to bear on something that felt so important until a bit of a personal epiphany after the Paris Agreement was signed, when I recognised that, along with many other people, I'm sure, that uh, if all these countries were going to stick to their national determined contributions and these commitments, it would mean a huge change in industrial strategy. And that there was obviously going to be a need for banks and investors to partner with their real economy customers to make sure that that they transitioned in the way that the economy would transition to net zero and that there was a real first mover advantage to those banks that really understood how to partner with their clients on this and make sure they had the right products, the right expertise, they had the right exposure. And I looked at it very much through an opportunity lens as opposed to the the risk lens, which maybe has explained why we, we look so much at financing green at the Green Finance Institute. I was in a really fortunate position working at one of the large banks and was able to effectively give up my day job and start looking at how we could develop a suite of green products. And I looked around the organization to see what were we doing, realized there was a bit of a gap. And I started off with, I think it was six colleagues saying, why don't we build a playbook for how we could develop some of these green products. Within a year, we were a 200 strong group of volunteers. We'd launched 12 products, including the first green mortgage by a UK bank, first green bond issued by a UK bank backed by UK assets, and the first green corporate deposits, amongst many other products, recognizing that the customers were really interested and that we were onto something here. So it was an exciting journey. And I'm very grateful to my previous employer for sort of politely looking the other way at first and then embracing what we were doing as they recognized that this was something that was uh, as a huge advantage to the organization. Since then, I obviously saw that um, the UK government was setting up this Green Finance Institute and I was, I was of the view that this would be one of the most impactful platforms to actually continue with this creating green investment opportunity and set about quite a a protracted period of trying to make sure that I got this role by making sure everybody knew I was very interested in it. Um, And and I'm delighted and it's such a privilege to to have this role today. So you mentioned the thing about, you know, ensuring that we have enough female voices and talented women on this agenda, because I do think this is all about creative solutions and we do need diversity of thinking and diversity of views. And also to your point earlier about green being the pathway to recovery following the pandemic. And that's something that I think we also need to think about how we need a gendered green recovery as well. Women that we know have been hugely impacted by the pandemic and are disproportionately impacted by climate change as well. And so that, that thinking does need to be part of our solutions. So I'm obviously in a very fortunate position of being able to build a team. So it'll come as no surprise that we actually have a majority female governance board. 
the majority of the senior executive positions in the team are women. And we also have an advisory council that is uh, split 50-50. So we're making sure that we have a, a really diverse group of people. And I'd also like to use the opportunity to shout about one of the one of my mentors, the fantastic Emma Howard Boyd, who is chair of the Environment Agency uh, here in the UK, and also one of the founders of the 30% Club, who always impresses on me the importance of whenever you have an opportunity and a platform mm-hmm. to not just talk about how many talented women there are in this agenda, but to call them out. So I'm calling out Mary Amomi today. <laughs> who's working very hard with Nigel Topping in the COP26 unit and doing a fantastic job. Uh, So I think it's really important that we all use our platforms to cheerlead other women that we see doing such really impactful and great work. I think that is a fabulous way to end. What a great note to end on. I love that concept of calling out those who are doing well, particularly women and this idea of the diversity of views and and things. And you have clearly shown what one individual can do who's willing to take a risk. And it makes such a big difference. And I think that's sometimes what people forget is it doesn't always take an institution. One individual can bring an institution along. So we've just been so delighted to have you on our podcast today. It's been a very inspiring discussion. And I know that we can continue going on and on because there's so many other things to touch upon. So maybe if we could indulge you in a few months, we could come back maybe after the G7 and do another interview to look at the progress that has been made and find other things that could be inspirational in other countries that they could learn from the discussions and the actions that the UK is taking. Deborah, I would be absolutely delighted to do that. And of course, very pleased to be working with the Paulson Institute and all the great work that you're doing. So yes, please, if we can have a conversation later in the year, I'd be delighted to do that. Great. Well, thank you. We will look forward to that. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks To. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. Join us again.